we're jumping into this series on 1 Corinthians. And there was already a little introductory episode uh, where we actually read through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And so I hope that you guys enjoyed that. Uh, It is a valuable primer on the book to simply sit down and read all 16 chapters in one sitting. So I'd highly encourage you to go back and check that out. And there's a video version of it on YouTube too, if you would like to actually see uh, the verses and read them on the screen as you're hearing them read as well. But I've listened through it twice myself already. Uh, once while I was mowing the, uh, uh, while I was doing some mowing, uh, once while I was in the car. So it's a good opportunity just to put it on in the background and check it out. But regardless, we're going to jump into a couple things in this episode. So let me give you a little sneak peek. I'm going to talk about uh, just the general, uh, there's one theme through this book that really just continues to come up through the thing. So we're going to talk about that. Uh, then we're going to talk about my reason for jumping into 1 Corinthians in the first place. Then I'm going to show you a uh, kind of the template for the next few episodes um, where I'll be interviewing people that walk through 1 Corinthians with me, and uh, I'll answer those questions that I'm going to be asking them for myself so that you guys can kind of get a sneak peek of that. And then if we have time, at the end, I'll give you a little sneak peek into um, the next series at my church, Pond Hill, and uh, how that's going to also kind of tie into what we're talking about here in 1 Corinthians. So let's go ahead and jump in. So uh, 1 Corinthians is one of those books that I've actually spent quite a bit of time with. Uh, I've preached through it many times. I've read it many times. And so I'm pretty familiar with the vibe of 1 Corinthians. But it wasn't until I went through this uh, life group that we did where I really saw how pervasive the main theme of 1 Corinthians is. Like, I probably could have told you that this was the main theme, uh, but really just the pervasiveness of it uh, came alive. And we did this study on uh, Right Now Media. Right Now Media is like a Christian uh, streaming service isn't quite the right word. It's specifically made for Bible study, but essentially they have a lot of different um, people that they'll contract to make um, things that you can walk through and and help you through certain books of the Bible. Um, There are some that are geared more towards like a life group type thing like we're doing where there's a group at church that is going through a book and the person is very clearly speaking to that and they have a study guide that goes with it. Sometimes they're more personal. Sometimes they're more thematic. Sometimes they're made exactly for the platform. Um, Like they're a right now media study that's exclusively available there. And like right now media's team helped make it. And sometimes they're uh, content that exists elsewhere that they've just kind of put on right now media, like the Bible project is on right now media. Um, But obviously their stuff is, is elsewhere as well. So it's a really cool tool. I would highly encourage it. Um, we decided to kind of gift it to our church because I don't think it's it's fr- it's not free to use. Um, it, it does cost something. Um, but if you're in my church, you have like a special sign-in that you can get into this and, and look at it. You can use it personally, but we also use it for our life groups. And so on Right Now Media, uh, Jenny Allen, who's a popular speaker, uh, had it, it was brave enough to do something on First Corinthians. There's like nothing on the platform on First First Corinthians because the book is so. It's just, it's a hard book. It's a really difficult book, and uh, she was brave enough to jump into it. So we went through this life group with, uh, with um, an emphasis on her teaching, and then really though our big emphasis was let's let's use the template that she uses for the scripture. So she has divisions for for which chapters to read for what week. 
Let's read those. We came together. We discussed what we read first, and then we watched the video. So it was like very much um, focused on the scripture and then kind of her teaching separately. But one of the best things that she did when she was discussing 1 Corinthians is really highlight this main theme. And the main theme of 1 Corinthians is humility and like others focused service. What I want to do is I want to kind of highlight um, where Paul calls out where this isn't being done, because that's really, 1 Corinthians is like a corrective letter from Paul to the church of Corinth. And we can see he says some things about the disunity here in all over the place. So I'm just going to pick three of them uh, here. So um, 1 Corinthians, we're going to go to chapter one right at the beginning, because this is super clear just right away. So if you go 1 Corinthians 1, verse 11, he says, For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers and sisters, by member of Chloe's people, that there is rivalry among you. And yeah, so this is, he's getting these reports that, hey, you know, we just rolled through town. Chloe is like a co-worker with Paul. She's probably taking a band of uh, missionaries, church planters around where Paul has been and kind of checking in on these churches. And this is kind of what Paul did is he would go and he would start something. And then he had these other, this other, these other teams that would go and minister to those. And so Chloe comes back to Paul and says, hey, um, there's some stuff going on in, in Corinth. Like these, the, there's some things going on. There's a lot of rivalry as the, this translation uses in this instance there's more elsewhere to kind of like illuminate this thing. Um, we're going to skip over one of them and go to 11. Because in 11, 18, uh, Paul says, For to begin with, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. So again, this, this the church in Corinth had sort of gotten this reputation there was a lot of like power in the church of Corinth as well and that's in there too but they had gotten this reputation for not always getting along with each other and that was something that was really important to Paul and he's going to kind of get into that and the third portion of scripture kind of kind of highlights that so in verse uh, in 10:16 he says the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a sharing of the blood of Christ and the bread that we break, is it not sharing of the body of Christ? Because there's one bread. We who are many are one body. Since all of us share the one bread, consider the people of Israel. Do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar? What am I saying then? And he's going to jump into other stuff that we'll get into later. But basically what he's saying is, look, you guys have been baptized into the body of Christ. And, you know, this other theme that, again, we're going to get into in a second of the Lord's Supper and communion reminds you that you're all part of the same body. And he's going to continue to talk about the body as well as, as we continue to go forward here. Um, but, yeah, Paul is really, really, really concerned with unity, and the Corinthians are just not getting it. They're just not getting that. And so Paul is going to write this letter to them. And he makes his intentions very, very clear in 1 Corinthians 4. I think that's probably the best place that we could see it. Now, if you're familiar with 2 Corinthians as well, he, he kind of refers back to this idea. But in 1 Corinthians 4, 15, he says, um, actually, we're going to go 4, 18, sorry. Now, some are arrogant as though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills. And I'll find out not the talk, but the power of those who are arrogant. 
For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And then here's 21. This is really where you kind of get his intention for writing 1 Corinthians uh, to, to this church. What do you want? Should I come with you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? So Paul's going to be showing up to Corinth, and he's going to be walking through those doors. And Paul's desire is that he walks into those doors, and it's an it's a attitude of love, and it's celebration. Like it's a celebratory visit from Paul. And so what Paul is doing is he's writing this letter to do the correction ahead of time so that when he gets to Corinth, he doesn't have to lay the smack down on the Corinthians. That's the idea that's going on here. And I think that that's just really practical. It's really practical. One other thing, though, about uh, Corinthians, and this is something that maybe you've noticed already, maybe you already knew this, or maybe you picked up on it a little bit if you uh, listen through the whole book of 1 Corinthians. And here, here's, here's the thing. There was a letter written from Corinth to Paul sometime before the writing of 1 Corinthians. And Paul refers to this in his letter. And unfortunately, that letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul is lost in time. We simply do not have that letter. And Paul, at times, seems to maybe quote from that letter. And that's that's challenging because in ancient manuscripts... There are no quotation marks. Uh, there are just words. So, so we. So sometimes there's some stuff that Paul says that we're like, mm, is he saying that, or did the Corinthians say that to him? And he's kind of stating the question and then answering it. And that's a uh, that's a big thing that scholars have thought about. Some Bible translations will even uh, literally put things in quotation marks, and so um, maybe we'll hit some of that at times. But let me get into the next the next kind of stage of this, which is simply, why did I choose to look at 1 Corinthians? And uh, what about it was, you know, caught my attention. So I, I was walking through some stuff, and uh, maybe I'll give a little background to why that was the case. But essentially, I started to ask a question about communion, um, about the Lord's Supper. And um, as... One of my roles at Pond Hill uh, as one of the, the pastors here is I'm kind of in charge of like all things Sunday. So I, I don't always preach on Sunday, uh, but regardless of who's speaking or who's doing the music or anything, like that, I'm sort of in charge of making sure that Sunday goes off without a hitch. And so uh, that that's like technical stuff. That's planning, you know, what songs are going to happen, making sure that the volunteers are lined up, things like that. And I share that responsibility with some other people as well. But but I'm sort of like the person that's making it all happen in the background. Um, and one of the things that is particularly challenging for us, we're not a church that takes communion every single Sunday. Um, and so what we, what we think is we like to take communion in a very intentional way, and we like the service to lend itself well to communion. So uh, what we'll do is we'll plan communion into our service in such a way that we're actually like speaking about something that relates to communion during the sermon, and we're tying something in, or we're making communion sort of like the next step um, to walk forward in, in unity or surrender to God or 
something like that. And so it can be tough then to, to say, hey, we want to take communion often because it seems like the Bible wants you to take communion often, but we don't want it to just be like a, a flippant thing. So we're always thinking about communion in our in our planning. And I started to hear some, you know, other opinions about communion. So it started, I was leading worship at another church and I was uh, singing for them uh, with their band. And I was talking to somebody afterwards and they, they essentially, I was kind of like the fly on the wall for this conversation between two people in this church, because it's not a church that I'm in. So I don't know what, what the exact, you know, going ons are of their week to week service. And they were talking about like a change that had recently been made, or maybe something that was talking about being made. It wasn't quite sure. And I sort of got into the conversation and I was just kind of there for the conversation, you know, how sometimes you're talking to one person then somebody else comes up and then all of a sudden you're kind of trapped in that conversation. That was kind of what was going on. And they, they were talking and one of them turned to me and said, your, your church takes communion every week, right? And I was like, no, no, we don't take communion every week. We, 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 you know, we, we, we don't want it to become like a, something that's like, uh, people feel obligated or, or, or it's just like an empty ritual. That's kind of the, the, what I said to them. And they were like, oh, because their church had been taking it every week, but they were starting to move away from that. And they were like, maybe we don't take this every week. Maybe we take it, you know, a couple times a month or something like that. Maybe going to more of like a similar structure than my church has traditionally had. And they were taken aback by that because to them, to the person that was talking to me in that moment, to them, like it was a core tenet of um, doing church to take communion every single Sunday. And so they were like not, I mean, they weren't like heated about the fact that it was was changing. They weren't like getting ready to leave the church over it, but they, they were sort of disappointed that that was happening. And it just got me thinking like, hmm, you know, why don't we, why don't we take because I kind of said that what I said as like an automated response. So what, why have we really thought about taking communion? And we had actually just been talking and coming into 2023, we had just resolved that we're going to do communion minimum once a month uh, because we had, th- we thought that the previous year, and it was really something that was coming off of COVID because the way that we could do communion changed during COVID because we weren't passing things around and um, things like that. So so coming off of COVID, like during COVID, we really didn't take communion hardly at all. Um, we did it virtually a couple times, and I think we did it at Good Friday. And so we only took it maybe three or four times that year. And then moving into um, 2022, it was again kind of spotty as we were getting back into church. We weren't quite sure how to implement it, and it just kind of didn't happen. And one of the main you know, reflections coming off of December going into 2023 was, hey, we, we want to make sure we're taking communion often because we feel like in Scripture that's something that's talked about a lot, and we don't want to neglect communion. So we did that. So at the same time, um, one of my siblings is becoming Catholic. They get confirmed in the Catholic Church, and I have a conversation with them, and she tells me, uh, that one of the main reasons, one of the main reasons Catholicism is compelling to her is this really strong emphasis on the Eucharist. So we start talking about that. And it's funny, right before I started, I, I, I had like a scheduled time with her because we give kind of opposite schedules. And uh, we were having, we we're going to have 
breakfast one day, and I think like literally a week earlier, I was listening to one of my favorite podcasts, Theology in the Raw, and there was a talk by Francis Chan um, at the Exiles Conference, and that was the Exiles 2022, I believe, and it was kind of like just a re-release of the talk, and guess what? It was about communion, and so here's here's Francis Chan, who's who's um, advocating for. He's like, I think, I th- you know, he said something like, I think communion is probably the most important thing we could do together as a church. And that was very different for for me because we we like communion. We think communion is important, but to say it's the most important thing is something that we had not heard. Like I prob probably in my in my uh, upbringing, the thing that would be identified as the best thing we could do together is probably fellowship, most likely, just spending large amounts of time with one another. I would say that that most likely, in my mind, would have been what I would consider the most important thing a church could do together. We might have said, like, study the Bible together, because that's, like, the good evangelical thing to say is the most important, right? Because that's, like, the whole point of, of our, like, tradition, right, is, like, that the Bible is supreme and most, you know, most important for for doing churches is the, the, the teaching and distribution of the Bible. I love the Bible, don't get me wrong, but I think in my church what is practically shown is is more leaning towards fellowship, being there for each other and doing life with one another is something that is of high importance in my church. So I started to wonder, hmm, is there actually like a bigger connection between communion? Because my experience of communion is a, something that happens in a Sunday service, and it's like a, it's it's a ritual is what it is. We don't love that word as Christians because it has a diff, you know a pagan connotation, but it is a ritual. It's a set thing that you do, um, that uh, happens very specifically. There's certain words that are said during it, and there's certain postures that are taken during it. And this is especially true if you're coming from more of a mainline or Catholic. Um, denomination where there's very, very specific things that are done. And maybe if there's a priest doing it, they're, they're even making certain motions with their hands, and um, there are certain things that are done in a certain order. So that's a ritual. That's exactly what a ritual is. And so for me, communion was a ritual. But I was looking into scripture, and I was like, okay, we're talking about house churches mostly. So the Church of Corinth wasn't a church that had like its own building and like its own uh, utilities and like, like we think of church as going to a building and having a service. This wouldn't have been what the Corinthians were doing. They were going to somebody's house, most likely. So a, a Corinthian believer that maybe had more uh, wealth than another had a bigger house. The Corinthians would come in and they would congregate in that house and they would have conversations. They would ha- do prophecy. They would exercise uh, gifts of some sort and uh, they would have a meal together. And during either during that meal or simply that meal itself was what represented communion to them. I mean, if you think about the first time that Jesus took communion, it was during Passover. And I don't know if you guys have ever experienced a Passover meal or a Seder dinner, but it's it's pretty cool. I mean, it's literally a dinner where you're sitting around and there's rituals involved in the dinner. So there's certain things that you do um, at certain times throughout the day. And Jesus took the third cup of Passover and made it the Lord's Supper in uh, in the Gospels, and that's where we get this idea of the Lord's Supper. So again, it's it's Jesus sitting around a table with his disciples, 
and there's rituals involved, but there's not just rituals involved. Like during the Passover meals that I've been a part of, there's intentional breaks for when you actually eat your food. And it's essentially just eating a meal together. And I feel like maybe, maybe that's what is supposed to be when we talk about communion. Like it's a meal together more so than it is, you know, taking a small piece of a, a cracker and a little thing of grape juice or whatever and drinking that. Like the, the ritualistic aspect of it is is pro- probably not quite the same as what it was in the early church. Anyway, um, some of the most famous portions of scripture on the Lord's Supper happen in 1 Corinthians. And so as I was kind of discussing this with um, the team here at Pond Hill, I was just curious, you know, about what exactly we should do. So I started reading a little bit already in 1 Corinthians 10 about the Lord's Supper, where, where Paul says the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, since all of us share the one bread. And so this is pretty huge. You know, later on, it says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share on the Lord's table and the table of demons. Are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And he's talking there specifically about going to a temple feast. And a temple feast was essentially this big party that they would throw for um, for some god or goddess in Corinth. And so that like think about that picture. So the communion of the Lord is being compared to this other thing where it's like a party and like a full meal for this. So is there some sort of similarity between the two things? Like it's like you have to pick what party you go to and you know the party at the church of corinth is the one that you should be participating in like is that more what paul's envisioning here is like just getting together and having a big old um get together and a and a, and a meal together but later on is like the big stuff in in chapter 11 verse 17 it says now in giving this instruction i do not praise you since you come together not for better but for worse for to begin with, I hear that you come together as a church. There are divisions, and in part, I believe it. And here's what there were divisions about. Like, here's where the divisions were working themselves out is actually in the Lord's Supper. So, indeed, it's necessary that there are factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. When you come together, then, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For at the meal, each one of you eats his own supper. So, one person is hungry while another gets drunk. Don't you have homes in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say? Should I praise you? I don't praise you in this matter. For I received from the Lord what is also passed on to you on the night when he was betrayed. The Lord Jesus took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, This is my body, which for which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. And then he gets into this self-examination thing where he's like, if you're, if you're eating and drinking in this unworthily, like it is a damnable sin is, is what it goes into. And it's like, you, this is so important that if you mess it up, it's a big deal. And so we always talk about that passage of scripture in self-examination because there is a uh, verse in here that is very important, 
It's tough. In verse 28, it says, let a person examine himself in this way. Let him eat the bread and drink the cup. And what we do is we internalize that and we say, hey, examine yourself. Make sure you're not living in sin, any kind of sin that's unrepentant, before you drink the cup. But actually what Paul's getting at here is not that. Actually what, and it's, I mean, I guess that's true. But when he says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner is guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. Well, what did he just talk about with the body? He just talked about how there's factions among you, the church. And when he says, when you drink in an unworthy way, that unworthiness should be a link back to what he just said about you guys are each bringing your own food. Some of you are hungry. Some of you are um, over full. And basically what's happening here is there's the people that are rich, they're bringing food, they're eating their food. The people that are poor aren't bringing food because they don't have food and they're going hungry. And, and it might even, I've heard some scholars say that, you know, the people that don't have to work, like the not the non-working class can get there and feast before the working class could even get there. So they're like getting there early, finishing the food. So by the time the people get off of work and get there, there isn't any food for them. And I've heard that that's one interpretation of this passage. But basically what's happening here is it's not so much about personal righteousness, although that's important. Don't get me wrong. You should examine yourself and make sure that you're following Christ. But uh, you, but that examination is more, am I doing everything that I can do to promote unity in the body of Christ? And that is huge. That is really, really important. So let's go ahead and jump into um, the interview questions here. So these these are the questions that I've asked the people that I'm going to be talking to to answer. And I've asked them to put some verses around it. And so here is kind of what's going on it, with me. So there's four questions, and I'll walk through them. So the first one is, what was your favorite part of 1 Corinthians? Pretty easy uh, question there. What's your favorite part? And my my actual favorite part is also going to answer a later question. And so I'm going to hold off on that. Instead, what I'm going to do is uh, talk briefly about 1 Corinthians 13, because this is one of my favorite parts as well. I suspect these are verses that you may know. I'll just read a little bit of it here. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and if I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy. It's not boastful. It's not arrogant, etc. <laughs> you guys probably have heard these verses. I've always heard these verses at weddings, um, and I have to say that's just a misuse of this passage of Scripture. Um, that's not what this passage of Scripture is getting at. If you want to say, like, this is a general description of love, and uh, we can learn from this passage what love looks like in a general sense. Uh, that's okay. That's fine. That's fine. I suppose you could use that in a wedding. But when we get together and we talk about weddings and we're talking about romantic love between two people, or even commitment between two people, what we're actually doing is we're kind of missing 
the point of what Paul is getting at in this chapter. Is 1 Corinthians 13 takes place in right nestled between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, just in case you forgot how numbers worked. And uh, 1 Corinthians 13 is a bridge between 12 and 14. Because Paul in chapter 12 is saying, you know, you guys are all boasting about your gifts. Remember earlier I said that Corinthians was a it was a powerful place. Like there was there was healing going on, there was lots of teaching going on, lots of speaking in tongues going on. Lots of exercising of the spiritual gifts, as we might call them. And what's happening is that um, they, the gifts are overtaking each other. First of all, there's like disorder, like nobody knows what's going on. Like it's kind of like a madhouse when you walk in because everybody's trying to get their, their peace in. But also, there's simply this idea that certain gifts are better than others. So an easy like example of this might be like if you have a gift for teaching and someone else has a gift for say administration event planning say a more background oriented um you know gift that they're using for the lord it's important like maybe they organize all the food to be there that you're eating that's important but the person that's like front and center in the crowd it's easy for them to think oh i'm better because i have this gift that's on display I'm good at speaking, and I can teach people, and I can help people follow Christ better. It's really easy to get, you know, blown up about that. We've we've heard and seen lots of stories of, you know, big, famous pastors that have had a similar kind of arrogance to them. And Paul gets into this thing about being the body of Christ, um, and you know, maybe maybe you've maybe you've heard this before, uh, but he kind of gets a little silly with it. In verse 14, 12, 14, indeed, the body is not one part, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not the hand, I don't belong to the body, it's not for that reason any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it is not for any reason less part of the body. And if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God has arranged each one of the parts in the body just as he wanted. And if they were all the same part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that are weaker are indispensable. And this is a really important theme in the book, because again, we're talking about unity, being together for the body. Let me, let me read to you what the last paragraph of chapter 12. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the last paragraph of chapter 12 and then jump right into the first paragraph of chapter 13, which I've already read. So listen to this, starting verse 27 of 12. Now you are the body of Christ and individual members of it. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all do miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in other tongues? Do all interpret? But desire the greater gifts, and I will show you an even better way. If I speak human or angelic tongues, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so that I can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give away all my possessions, and I give over my body in order to boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Then he starts listing all these qualities. And the crazy thing is these qualities are, um, they're selfless. 
qualities, patience, kindness, not, not envious, not boastful, not arrogant, not rude or self-seeking. It's not irritable. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It doesn't glory and unrighteousness, but it rejoices in truth. And it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures anything, and it never ends. It, listen to what Paul is saying here. He's not talking about romantic love in the least bit here. What he's saying is, man, you guys are so concerned with being better than everybody else, and you're arrogant, and you're boastful, and you're envious of what other people have. But the better way is actually love, and it's, it's selfless, it's humble. It seeks peace. Yeah, so I think 1 Corinthians 13 is often taken out of context, and to me it's much more beautiful in its context here because it reminds us what brotherly love looks like in the church, what we're supposed to act like towards each other. It's an equal playing field, if uh, you want to use that analogy, like regardless of what you're doing in the church, the emphasis should be on love. And I think that's really, really important for us today. And I think we do a really poor job at it sometimes uh, because we get a little stuck on ourselves. But love is not boastful or arrogant. Uh, it's supposed to be selfless. So I think that's huge. I think it's really important. And I wish uh, I wish it was highlighted more often when we talked about that particular portion of Scripture. So the second question is, what was the most surprising part of 1 Corinthians? And my most surprising part had to be Paul's conversation about food offered to idols. And this is a really important portion of scripture for me because I've heard it referenced a lot in uh, 1 Corinthians 8. And mostly I've only heard 8 and I haven't heard 10. And I think that's a mistake. One of the things I said in the last podcast is that when you have this in the same book by the same author, when they talk about the same thing in two different places, the second time that they talk about it, you got to go back to the first time and kind of compare and contrast them and figure out what exactly is going on here. And I never really did that until I started jumping into 1 Corinthians um, earlier and uh, or later. It was actually more later last year and um, earlier this year as well. And I think that was a mistake. Like, 1 Corinthians does this a lot, where Paul spends time. Like, we just did it, actually. We talked about 13 in the context of 12 and in the context of 14 because we followed Paul's train of thought about being one body and using our spiritual gifts to edify each other instead of tear each other down. And so uh, when we get over here to food offered to idols, chapter 8 is like so often, often referred to because it's like, what do we do when we've got these gray areas? And I've always had this narrative said to me about being a quote unquote above reproach. And, and it's like, even if somebody in your life, even if you don't think it's wrong, if somebody in your life thinks it's wrong, you should concede to them. And uh, it's funny because, man, Paul is like not really saying that. He kind of is, but then he's also not. It's, it is complicated. It's complicated. But, um, but let, me, let me read this thing. Okay, so let me give you a preface. Basically, um, once again, they're arguing, and, and 
Paul says, you know, we know that we all have knowledge, and the CSB puts we all have knowledge in quotes as if that was the thing that was said to Paul in the letter that he got. Because here's what he says right after that. He says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. And so it's like he he's saying like, you guys are focused on like the knowing of things. But again, that like is puffing up. It's causing division between you guys. And that's not what it's all about. It's all about love. Crazy. We just talked about that, right? Um, and so what's happening is, in the ancient times, they would sacrifice meat to idols, and then what happens is the um, temple staff would sell the meat to some kind of vendor, and then they would sell that meat in the marketplace. And there was this idea, certainly in Judaism, that you were not allowed to eat that meat because it had been sacrificed to an idol. And so it was like tainted. It was unclean meat. And um, the, the, the early church carried this over, certainly, and said, you know, you can't really eat that. But there's a lot of people in Corinth that were not Jewish converts. They were Greco-Roman converts, and they were used to eating this meat. And so there was a division in Corinth that uh, over whether you could or could not eat it. And Paul starts to weigh in. And he says, For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, Yet for us, there is one God, the Father. All things are from him, and we exist for him. Which is interesting, because that's a direct quote uh, from from a quote about Zeus, which is interesting. And there's one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him, and we exist through him. And so Paul is definitely like, yeah, you could eat that meat. That's not a big deal. Like, it's just meat, right? It's all from God anyway. Um, and then he goes in verse 7. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. So right away, Paul is like saying that it's a weak conscience that causes you not to get over this. So right away, he's like, it's a weaker position to believe that this is wrong because um, once again, he, in fact, he says again in verse eight, food will not bring you close to God. We're not worse off if we don't eat and we are not better if we do. But then he says this, but be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? So the weak person for whom Christ has died is defiled by your activity. And again, Paul is saying, look, man, it doesn't really matter if you eat or don't eat. But uh, what does matter is that you look out for your brother or sister in the Lord and you respect their conscience. And so that concept of love, super good. Yeah, so you can apply this to all kinds of stuff today. Um, and you could, you know, maybe swearing would be an example. Some people are okay with it. Some people are not okay with it. So maybe don't swear in front of people that aren't okay with it. Um, that's, you know, that's that's like, a, a I think, a proper application of what this is going for. Alcohol is another example. It's like, okay, so... Um, if, if you if you know if you're having somebody over your house that's not cool with you having a glass of wine maybe don't drink in front of them um does that mean that you don't drink ever well I don't know um some people would take it there I I, I don't but some people would here's the here's the thing though here's the thing though because this meat is uh sold in the marketplace and that's kind of where the conversation starts 
uh, is just a, simply about eating that food, which was sacrificed to idols. But Paul takes it to somewhere different towards the end of this, and he says, if someone sees you dining in an idol's temple, won't their weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols? Um, so he's, I think he's taking it to a different place that he's going to come back to in chapter 10, which we've literally already read like a bunch of times. So I'm going to read quickly here. Verse 14, so then my dear friends flee from idolatry. I'm speaking as to sensible people judge for yourself when I'm saying the cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread. We who are many are one body. Since all of us share the one bread, consider the people of Israel, do not those who eat the sacrifices participate in the altar. What am I saying then, that food sacrificed to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, but I do say that what they sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot share in the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or are we provoking the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than him? Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything builds up. No one is to seek his own good, but the good of the other person. Eat everything that is sold in the meat market without raising questions for the sake of conscience, since the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. If any are unbeliever, invite you, and you want to go, eat everything that is set before you without raising a question for the sake of conscience. But if someone says this is food from a sacrifice, don't eat it. Out of consideration for the one who told you and for the sake of his conscience, I do not mean your own conscience, but the other person's. For why is my freedom judged by another person's conscience? If I partake with thanksgiving, why am I criticized? Because of something for which I give thanks. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Give no offense to the Jews or Greeks in the church of God. Just as I also try to please everyone in everything, not seeking my own benefit, but the benefit of many, so that they may be saved. Imitate me as I as I imitate Christ. So yeah, I think there's some stuff going on in that passage. I think there's a clear uh, there's a clear stepping over the line, and I think for Paul, that stepping over the line is actually physically going to a temple feast and partaking in that activity. So there's I think there's two things that we glean from this. The first is that Paul recognizes that there is a gray area, but he also says there is a point at which you step over a line. And for in my interpretation of this passage, the over the line is going to a temple feast. And I don't I don't hear that that often when we talk about this passage. Like I don't I hear about like, okay, you know, it's just better not to do it. Like why play with fire, you know? And uh or, or I hear the opposite narrative where it's like, man, why are we conceding to weak people? We should be free to exercise our Christian liberty. Paul's really against that framework, though, because the thing that Paul's the most concerned about is we need to be looking out for the other people in the family of God. And that's like his big thing. Like, dude, you know, whatever you do, do everything in the glory of God, which he defines in the next verse. Don't give any offense to Jews or Greeks in the church of God. There it is. That's what it means to give glory to God, not to pray for what you're about to put in your mouth. That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is giving glory to God as being a peacemaker with your brother and sister in the Lord. So let's try not to do things that are actively going to offend the people that we're sharing the kingdom of God with. Now, it doesn't mean offend the... The people on Facebook, when you, you know, when you post something 
uh, of yourself, you know, drinking alcohol or something like that. That's not what I'm talking about. That I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. He's saying the people that are around the table with you, in front of you, let's try to be at peace with them. God has called us to be not just the greater, you know, Catholic sense of the family of God, meaning all the believers in all the world, but also the local expression that you've made yourself, that you've grafted yourself into. Um, try to be at peace with those people at all costs, because that's what it means to bring glory to God. But then when we're talking about those gray areas, you know, um, I, I here's what I think we got to do, man. We have to identify there is a certain point at which we step over the line. And I think that we should be okay with saying that. Um, but there's a lot of grayness before then. There's a whole lot of grayness before then. So yeah, when we're talking about meat offered to idols, man, you could eat or not eat. Paul doesn't really seem to care. It seems to be a gray area up to your conscience. You know, Paul certainly thinks you could eat, but there are other believers that don't. And Paul says to respect those people. But he does say, there's a line here. Don't cross it. And I think we should treat some of those gray areas differently. Uh, I think we should be should be saying that, you know. Um, I think uh, alcohol is a really easy example of that, and that's why I've sort of been using that. It's like how much is too much? What can you and can't you drink? Um, those are all like gray area questions, but there's definitely a certain point at which the abuse of alcohol is certainly wrong. And I think, I think most people would look into Scripture and say that's just drunkenness. So what exactly does drunkenness mean? I don't know, but there's certainly like a point at which you can tell somebody is drunk. Um, they've lost their senses. Maybe they can't remember what they did when they were drunk. That's like those, you know, those are clear over the line for uh, people that are, are believers. And so I think we can say, yeah, um, there's a line here. Don't cross that line. But before then, I think we can acknowledge the grayness. And most of all, we can respect the people that have differences of opinion than we do. And that's what Paul's getting out here. Okay, the third thing, what was the most challenging part of 1 Corinthians? The most challenging part of 1 Corinthians is simultaneously my absolute favorite part of 1 Corinthians. It's the reason why I'm so familiar with this book because I've spent so much time in this passage and I've wanted to contextualize it and keep going it, and that's got to be 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is, to me, just like such a massively important part of the New Testament, part of the Bible in general. I feel like I wish we would talk about this more. Uh, let me give you a little bit of background on 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is something that we've used many times to talk about relationship status in our church. We've used this uh, passage of scripture tons and tons of times, many years. We try to, to teach on um, sex and marriage and relationships um, at least once a year because it's, it's such a huge part of our lives. And it's also something that people are just, they just don't understand. And several of those times that we preached on it, we've preached out of 1 Corinthians 7. And so um, here's what 1 Corinthians 7, I'm going to boil it down for you, and then I'll read just like a couple of the verses. But... Um, the confusing part of 1 Corinthians 7 is that Paul has like these qualifiers in there. Like sometimes Paul says, I have a direct word from the Lord about something. And then other times he says, here's my advice on something. 
So why those qualifiers are in there is a little bit of a mystery. Um, and uh, what that means, again, is a little bit of a mystery. Um, so as you read it, uh, just keep your eye out for those. But here's the idea from Paul. Now, Paul is a single dude. Some people think that Paul maybe was married at one point um, and his wife left him uh, when he became a Christian. It's possible. Maybe his wife died. Um, but Paul's a single guy. Barnabas is a single guy. Um, that's stated in Corinthians. And so here's Paul. He's a single dude. He's getting there. Now, you got to understand that at this time, marriage is like everything. Uh, marriage and family is huge, especially from the, the Jewish perspective. But in the ancient world in general, it, it's really everything. It's huge. It really is huge. And uh, Paul is talking here. He, he spends a lot of time talking about sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians, and he's kind of tearing things down. And so here he starts to address um, a very particular problem in 1 Corinthians 7. First, he talks about single people. He's going to talk to, to single, and he's going to talk to married folks. Um, uh, he's going to talk to single people, and he's essentially going to say to single people, it, the best thing for you is to remain single, which is insane for that culture. Like, to say that is wild. Uh, I mean, I don't think we can understand how huge that is that Paul's saying that. Paul, a Jewish guy, is saying, it's better for you to just stay single because... Marriage was everything in that culture. Um, and so he's saying that. But he's also going to talk about um, divorce. He's going to talk about married people already. And he's going to say, hey, if um, you're married, you should try not to be divorced. And if you're divorced, you should try not to get married again. And then he's going to launch into a particular kind of argument where he says, if you're married to a spouse— and you become a Christian, and there's your spouse does not. If they're willing to still live with you, you should stay with them and not divorce them. But if they leave because of your faith, then you're free from that marriage, and it's okay to uh, divorce them or to get divorced by them, and it's even okay to remarry, it seems, in uh, 1 Corinthians 7. So um, those are kind of like the two paradigms going on. And it's all held together by a very specific verse in 1 Corinthians 7 that I think kind of frames the conversation for us. And if we go to that in verse 17, it says, Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all churches. And he's going to take it away from relationships for a second. He's going to say, Was anyone circumcised when he was called? He should seek not to undo his circumcision. Was anybody called while uncircumcised? He should not get circumcised. Circumcision does not matter, and uncircumcision does not matter. Keeping God's commands is what matters. So let each one remain in the situation in which he was called. I love this. Later on, he talks about how you're bought with a price. Do not become slaves of people. Brothers and sisters, each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. I actually like the King James in that verse. He says, uh, wherever you were called, therein abide with God. Here's what Paul's point is in this passage, and he's just saying, man, we can get so hung up on singleness, on marriage, on our relationship status, but what's most important is our being with God, not our being with another person, another human. 
um, for, for relationship. And so regardless of where you're called, the best thing for you to do is to find God wherever you are. And so don't feel like you have to get married to become like the Christian ideal. Don't feel like you have to become single to become the Christian ideal. And if you look at, there's a point in 1 Corinthians where Paul's comparing himself to Peter. And he's talking about how, how Cephas, as he calls him in the, in the passage, has a wife. But Paul doesn't. So here's two people. They're, they're the two pinnacles of the early church. And uh, one of them is married and one of them isn't. And there's no discrepancy in status between the two of them. Like, like Paul is complete being single. Peter is complete being married. Um, and, and Paul wants to equalize that stuff. In fact, he even says, hey, if you stay single, there's a lot less like earthly problems you're going to have. Um, and uh, as somebody who's been both, I could definitely say that that's totally true. Like being married takes up time. Having kids takes up time. Um, and uh, as a single person, you can, there's, there's a special kind of service that you can offer because of your singleness. And so, um, so yeah, I think, I think what Paul says here is, is really vital. I think it's important to me. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture because, uh, I, I am somebody that I was married. Uh, my ex left and now I am single and there's a temptation to say, Oh, I've fallen from the Christian ideal because of, uh, this, you know, sort of forced singleness. And, uh, that's not at all what the scripture says. In fact, the scripture elevates singleness. And so I, I feel um, valued in this passage. And I, and I think that it's, it's a important shift of mind. This is what's so challenging about it is that it's so easy to get hung up on trying to find somebody. And it's easy to say, Oh, I'll be happy when I am, you know, fulfilled in this way. Uh, But there's a shift in our focus to say, Am I going to value myself in the eyes of someone else, or am I going to value myself in abiding with God and being with Him? And uh, that shift of focus is really hard, but it's it's very rewarding as well. And it's exactly what Paul is after in this passage. Okay, last question here is, what do you still have questions about in 1 Corinthians? And I still have questions about a couple things, but I would say the biggest, the biggest one for me has got to be the women passages in 1 Corinthians. Let me just explain to you what they are, and then I'll have a short uh, dialogue about them. The first one is 1 Corinthians 11, which is all about head coverings. And the particular questions that I have is um, what exactly is going on here? Because because right at the beginning, Paul makes like a very um, kind of crazy statement for me, where he says, verse 3, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of every woman, and God is the head of Christ. And he goes into the head covering thing. Um, verse 7, a man should not cover his head because he is the image and glory of God. So two woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels in the Lord. However, woman is not independent of man. Man's not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman. 
and all things come from God. Now, he kind of does a qualifier right after that, and he's like, hey, judge for yourself. Um, you know, if there's contention being caused by this, then it doesn't matter that much anyway. And it's so it's really interesting, his, like, words in 1 Corinthians 11. Um, he's putting forth this custom um, that would be very, like, culturally appropriate uh, but he says some theological things in there that, that give me some questions. And I'll talk about them in a second, but first I want to read the second passage in 14, 33 through 34, which says, since God is not a God of disorder but of peace, which is kind of a transition statement into what he's going to say next, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should be silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak but are to submit themselves as the law also says if they want to learn something let them ask their own husbands at home since it's a disgrace for a woman to speak in the church where did the word of god originate from you or did it come to you only that one is just like you read it and you're like ow why <laughs> that's crazy like why are we talking about this ah oh, it sounds so bad to read out loud um let me get just i'm going to qualify it a little bit because i have some, you know, some study put into this concept of like women and, and their role in the church. I'm not a woman, so um, it's, you know, always sticky to talk about this stuff for me. But uh, if you go back to chapter 11, so like the woman be silent thing that's, that's said in 14, some people will interpret that to say that like women, you know, can't speak in church. There are actually some cultures that literally, you, you, if, if you're a woman and you walk into the service, you cannot speak at all. Um, and that's wild to me. Like, that happens in, um, in Islam sometimes, um, and, but there are even some church contexts where that would be the case, um, some Christian church contexts. And that's uh, just brutal. I, I really, that's not at all what Paul is saying. Um, and here, here's why. Because in, in chapter 11, he, he says, verse number four in chapter 11, every man who prays or prophesies with something on his head dishonors his head. Every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since that is one and the same as having her head shaved. Uh, Paul is like not at all correcting the idea of women praying or prophesying, just like the men are doing. He's saying when you do it, uh, wear a head covering. And so... Um, not at all is Paul opposed to women praying and prophesying in the church, um, just like the men are doing. So keep that in mind when you get to this later passage in 14, when he says women be silent in church. Now, in particular, there's this idea that um, in 14, that when somebody prophesies, that it should be approved by the church um, and that people should, you know, judge for themselves if somebody's saying something to the church that doesn't make sense that it can be weighed and and it can be addressed and um that's when paul says women be silent and that word that he uses for women could also be interpreted wife um and uh so that could be the case where it's like wives don't be the ones to judge your husband's prophecy that could be that's like a possible interpretation probably where I'm leaning right now. Um, I think it, it is the best one, um, but it's still like hard. It's like a hard passage. And 
there's a lot of disagreement about it. So that's why it's uh, still troubling to me. Um, here's a, here's the important thing though. The important thing is in for in First Corinthians 11 with the conversation about head coverings, the whole goal that Paul's trying to do is say that both men and women are essential for the church. That's the the goal of that passage. Actually, has nothing to do with head coverings. It what I think is happening is that the first the, the Corinthians had a question about head coverings, and Paul says, you know. Here's where here's where I'm at. I think women should wear head coverings when they pray, when they prophesy. I don't think men should wear head coverings when they pray and when they prophesy. Um, and I think that's like a cultural thing. Like, ninety nine percent of churches are not forcing women to wear head coverings in church. Um, I suppose if you want to take this passage like super literally, um, and like ignore the end of the passage where Paul is kind of nonchalant about whether or not this is it uh, enforced in the church. Um, then you should probably be having your women wear head coverings. But I don't ever see that when people talk about this. I don't see people literally making women wear head coverings. Ironically, what I see is people not allowing women to pray and prophesy due to this passage, which is just com- like so stupid. <laughs> like it's just not, it's absurd to, to get to that point because that's the whole opposite of what Paul is saying. Um, you know, if you want to talk about like women holding office in the church. That's a different question that I don't think Paul is talking about here. Um, if anything, 1 Corinthians 14 might have more to do with that, but I'm still not there uh, with, with 1 Corinthians 14. Um, but in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is not at all talking about a woman being a pastor holding office in the church. Paul is literally talking about who, uh, who, how you can pray and prophesy in the church. He's making uh, a way for women to do that. Uh, in the culture where they live. And so it's absurd to say that they can't do that. That's just not reading the passage of Scripture. Um, now, uh, what's confusing about 11, though, is that uh, this conversation in 7, where a man should not cover his head because he's the image and glory of God, so to women is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but woman for the sake of man. This is why a woman should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Um, that's where it's like, okay, Paul is talking about like a creational reality that has something to do with man being created first, maybe, and woman second, and what exactly he's talking about. I'm not sure. And neither is anyone else. <laughs> like it's confusing. It's hard to understand. Scholars are like constantly debating over it. Pastors are constantly debating over it. Uh, it's tough. It's a it's a really hard passage. So that's one thing I have I have more questions about, and I feel like I'll always be doing this. What's interesting though is like even though he's like okay, man is the image of God, woman's the image of man, which is weird with Genesis one twenty seven anyway because. Because God makes human in his image, in the image of God, he makes them male and female. So both men and women are in the image of God. So that's that's not, what Paul is saying there is not contradicting that, but it sounds like it is. So what exactly he's getting at, I'm not totally sure there. Um, regardless, what he is giving about, getting at here, results in... 10 where it says this is why women should have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels when was the last time you heard first corinthians i mean maybe you're not familiar with this passage but those of you that are when was the last time that you heard first corinthians 11 about um preached in a way that says 
women should wear head coverings so that they can pray and prophesy in the church appropriately. So first that, but second, when have you heard uh, first... 1 Corinthians 11 presented in a way that says, because woman was created second, they have a special authority on their head. I've never heard it presented that way because whenever I hear people present this verse, they're usually talking about complementarianism and generally they're talking about sort of this like weird, I mean, generally it's unhealthy. Not to say that all complementarianism is unhealthy, but generally what I hear is like, okay, well, men and women, there's some kind of difference there. So men are allowed to do some stuff that women are not allowed to do. Um, and it's just not, it's not in the passage in 1 Corinthians 11. It's just not there. What exactly Paul's getting at, it's hard, hard for me to understand. I can't say that I have a amazing answer, but what I can say is that that's definitely not the answer. Uh, women and men are both designed to pray and prophesy in the church. And uh, culturally, it made sense at the time for women to be wearing head coverings when they did it. Um, and Paul might be on board with that cultural idea because of the created order, but also he might not be based on his ending statement when he says, judge for yourself, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you? That if a man has long hair, it's a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her as a covering. If anybody wants to argue about this, we have no other custom, nor do the churches of God. He doesn't really want it to be a point of argument, and uh, neither do I. Uh, but I. But what I will argue for is the correct reading of 1 Corinthians 11, which is that both men and women are designed to pray and prophesy. There is a difference in how they do it, but it is... Design, they're designed to be doing it in the church, and so let's not silence women. But then we get to 14, and Paul's like, don't let your women speak in the church. And it's like, oh, wow. Um, well, how does that sit with 11? What we can say is that it definitely doesn't mean just this plain idea that women can't speak in the church. And, I, you know, most people don't even agree with that, including complementarians. They don't even take that stance anyway. We have to read 14 in light of 11, where Paul is for sure saying that women should be praying and prophesying in the church. Um, and so we've got we to take that there. Um, but I could see a paradigm where you could say that 1 Corinthians 14 says that women may not be able to hold the final authoritative office in the church. Um, perhaps you could get there from 1 Corinthians 14. I think it's more likely that, you know, women should not be speaking out against their husbands in church. Uh, I'm much more down for that interpretation of, of 1 Corinthians 14. Um, but again, it's tough, and I uh, can't exactly say. So that's what I still have questions about in 1 Corinthians. Uh, and if you would like to hear more about that, jump into it, because it's a good book, and there's a lot of people that have said a lot of things about it. So... Uh, sort out for yourself what you think about those particular passages. And maybe we'll talk about them more. Final note, I uh, I have been in both complementarian and egalitarian contexts, and I don't see this as a opportunity to, to divide over. I definitely do not think this is a, a divide over type of uh, topic. And I think Paul is all about that too. Uh, I think he's all about the unity of the church, and I don't think he's ready to say that we should be dividing over this issue. Um, in fact, I think that the very reason why he wrote 
1 Corinthians 14 and 1 Corinthians 11, was for the purpose of the unity of the church. Looks like I don't quite have time to get into our sneak peek of the next series here at Pond Hill. Maybe I'll do a mini episode later on, or maybe you'll just have to check it out for yourself. So um, there is a YouTube channel and a Facebook page with our live streams of uh, Pond Hill's services. And we're going to be jumping into a new series starting, currently it's July, so starting in August. First week of August will be the first series, and I'll be delivering a sermon where I will be referencing 1 Corinthians. So I'd invite you guys to check that out. I'll throw some links in the show notes for that so that you can see uh, what we're all about and uh, maybe have a little bit of a bonus content for our upcoming series, The Greatest of All Time. Uh, I am super excited to move forward in Corinthians. The next episode will be all, uh, not all me. It will not be a solo podcast. It'll be an interview. So if you're getting tired of hearing me talk, be sure to tune into the next one because uh, it won't just be me. It'll be an interview with somebody who actually walked through 1 Corinthians with me. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm super excited for it. And uh, I can't wait to hear other people's perspective on this book and get into some conversations with them. I've had some preliminary conversations with a couple of them, and I've uh, been enjoying them so far. So I'm looking forward to the next episode, and I hope you guys are too. So I'll see you then. You've been listening to the Unison Church Podcast. If you're a Christ follower, I hope this has encouraged you to grow closer, not only to him, but also to his family. May we unite in our allegiance to him and raise our voices together to worship Yahweh. If you're not a Christ follower, I hope that this has represented Christ well to you. May this spark your curiosity towards Jesus and his people. In any case, I hope you'll connect with us again here on the podcast and share it with a friend. You can find links in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to us through other ways as well. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to being with you again soon.